If you're looking to buy or sell pre-IPO stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. Since 2009, SharesPost has transacted more than $4 billion in the top private tech companies. Proven, trustworthy, secure. Visit us at SharesPost.com. Coming up on Equity, we dive into what is next for the crypto markets, what's going wrong for Jewel at the government level, and then three IPOs out of China. Hello and welcome to Equity. I am Crunchbase News' Alex Wilhelm. We have Connie Loises right here in the studio. Connie, hi. Hi, everyone. And on the phone from New York, we have Danny Crichton, TechCrunch's editorial manager. Danny, what's going on? Hi, how are you? Uh, we're actually very proud to report that Danny's construction has ended <laughs> and we can now record the podcast uh, basically right on time. So it's going to be a hot show. And up first we have, um, well, what's the opposite of hot? I guess that'd be crypto. So Danny, what's going on and why is everything a catastrophe? <laughs> Well, certainly uh, after the bubble uh, uh, at late 2017, um, crypto prices have declined rapidly this year. So, so far, Ethereum and Bitcoin have lost a total of $300 billion in market cap. And to put that in perspective, that's about five Bernie Madoffs uh, in one go. Um, <laughs> Is that the new unit of financial fraud? Of <laughs> <laughs> financial imprudence, yes. Uh, yes uh, okay. And so I think one of the challenges when you look into the crypto space is what's, what's going to happen next? What, what do we do about it? And I think the answer is, is that it's no longer about crypto trading anymore. It really has to go back to sort of fundamental research and development of the blockchain technology itself. Now, you wrote an article about this that's up right now, and you make some interesting parallels between blockchain today and kind of the internet in the 90s, uh, which is, in my view, a bit of a kind of a worn out argument that's losing steam as crypto doesn't kind of break into the mainstream over time. Uh, why do you think that still fits in some way? I think we um, underestimate the the speed of innovation. When you look at the internet, the internet was uh, sort of invented in the early 1960s and was not popularized until the 1990s, right? In, in 1993, when when it was allowed for for commercial transactions. And the same thing is true of mobile phones. The first cell phones come out in the 1980s, and it wasn't until 2007 uh, with the iPhone that you started to see this sort of massive um, expansion in the number of users of these technologies. And so, you know, to say that. That blockchain, which is about nine and a half years old from from when uh, Bitcoin was launched in 09, is somehow like a failure because it hasn't reached mainstream, I think uh, is really looking at it too narrowly. You know, it's interesting. Of course, you guys know I love reading uh, everything under the sun, and especially Economist, which loves to... Uh you know, burn things down. It has a new story out titled Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are useless <laughs> for blockchains. The jury is still out. But Danny, I largely agree with you. But I have to say this, this uh, sort of piece argues persuasively that like maybe we're all waiting around for something that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I mean, um, you know, first, they, it sort of talks about how the, the steady decline in cryptocurrencies has been triggered by like institutional investors, banks and regulators. You know, the drive up was really um, sort of compelled by a lot of individual uh, early adopters. But I think the bigger concern is about blockchain. Um, organizations like Swift, it was saying a bank payment network and Stripe have abandoned their blockchain projects uh, because it just it costs too much. Um, and it's just it's, you know, I mean, I think it was sort of saying it's not completely useless, but it's sort of like maybe um, a, a problem in search of a solution or a solution backwards? in search of a problem <laughs> exactly. or this is a blockchain in search of a, in search of a use case. Okay. Right, right, right. Exactly. Danny, I presume disagree with that. I, I disagree. I think I think the challenge here is that people jumped to the end uh, before we had even figured out what the technology was, right? Like the internet, you know, it, this would be like in 1972, 
if if a, a co- company had come out and said, okay, we're going to start to support payments online, and it's forty people at Stanford and Harvard uh, with six you know computers on the internet, it doesn't make any sense. Well, I think we have to go back to is allow the nerds, so to speak, to to continue to build out this technology. Uh, you know, Swift does not need to be involved at this point. Stripe does not have to be involved at this point. What it should be is, is researchers, PhD students, you know, uh, computer scientists, engineers coming together in in conclaves around the world. Conclaves. Um, conclaves. <laughs> that um, is a word. So it's enclaves it, of nerds in particular locations. All right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, with smoke signals. Um, <laughs> and when the white smoke signals come out from the conclave, I think we'll know uh, when we can commercialize. <laughs> was, it, was it Plato or Aristotle that wrote the cave? So I'm forgetting the analogy That's, there. It's uh, gonna be Aristotle, I think. Thank you. It's gonna be a good joke about crypto hype and FUD and that. Uh, but Danny, you broke down three areas. Sorry to kind of riff on your story. I just really liked it. Uh, three things that you know, kind of blockchain slash crypto could work on moving forward. You said identity, the decentralized web, and security tokens. Um, super quick. I know this. We shouldn't spend too much time on this, but why those three? I was very curious. Well, I think you have to look for what are some of the new applications that blockchain could potentially solve that existing solutions are not good for. So when you look at payments, uh, since we already brought it up, payments is is a really tough space, right? You're you're up against Visa and MasterCard, which process thousands of transactions a minute. And blockchain at its best can process a handful at the same period of time. Um, whereas in identity or, or decentralized web, uh, we don't have technologies that are able to do that today. So in the identity case, um, being able to create a portable and secure identity um, for every human around the world is actually a problem that there is no solution today. Um, you know, if you actually follow like in, in India in the last couple of years, the government has created a new uh, ID card, in which there was a large hack and essentially is useless now um, because uh, almost all the information is public or social security number, uh, numbers in the United States. Uh, the same thing happens. So mm. uh, blockchain may solve a problem. We don't know. Uh, it just seems like a, a place where you could be able to create a cryptologically secure uh, identity, and that might be very useful. But again, well, we need we need nerds and conclaves to figure it out. Well, I'm I'm very glad that uh, databases are now hot, and they're apparently going to stay hot for a long time, even if the uh, the early fluff, you know, the bitcoins and the ethereum's, may not be kind of what bears out in the long term. Um, I, I will say that the the scale of value destruction especially in the last a couple of weeks compared to even the broader 2018 declines has been surprising to me. Um, but what I find fascinating is that if you go to the Bitcoin subreddits around, you know, the stuff that people are still very optimistic. It's almost, it's impressive to me that people don't lose hope when I would definitely kind of seed the the conversation, but it just doesn't happen. Um, and on that kind of note, uh, Coinbase and uh, Polychain Capital and some others have actually formed a crypto lobbying group in DC, kind of bringing some legitimacy to the, the collective, but it's weird to see decentralized currencies spawn <laughs> centralized companies that are spawning a centralized lobbying group to the central power of American government to, you know, lobby. It's, I totally it's missed it. That just happened uh, uh, this week. Uh, um, happened yesterday, yeah. Happened yesterday, yeah, because Polychain Capital was in the media as well for its, uh, I don't know, roughish 2018 returns after a big 17. Um, but we should probably yeah, they lost 40% of the capital. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, both from investment losses and withdrawals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was rough. Pledging Capital, if you don't know, was one of the superstars, one of the breakout funds uh, in 2017 that rode the crypto boom uh, to great heights and was kind of the uh, the darling of the finance world for a while. Um, but let's scoot along, uh, not to scooters happily, but to something that's equally annoying if you are a non smoker. <laughs> um, uh, Jewel is in trouble. Yes, Jewel. So Jewel has come up on a number of podcasts in the past, and I'm sure a lot of listeners at this point know what the company is. It's an e-cigarette company uh, that was formed a few years ago, and 
Uh, it is in the headlines every week for one reason or another. This week, uh, it's kind of a ser- serious uh, and potentially um, life-threatening to the company. The FDA has basically ordered um, five vaping brands, along with Juul, or excuse me, four plus Juul, to submit plans to um, show how they're going to be able to discourage the use of their products by teenagers within 60 days. Um, now, I think a lot of people sort of interpreted this as um, a move that was sort of directed toward Juul, specifically because Juul has like 72% of the market. But in fact, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb said today specifically on CNBC, like, let's face it, this is, you know, largely about Juul. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the FDA has kind of tried to get involved um in the last year or so, last summer, it basically uh, gave the vaping companies until 2022 to show that their products <laughs> comply with public health. Exactly. And we're laughing now. But I think what happened in the interim was, uh, you know, this sort of growing epidemic, as they describe it, uh, was worse than the um, FDA realized. And so back in April, I think it was, the FDA had sort of started poking around Juul and said it wanted to sort of understand how, how it's Um, marketing schemes work and that was sort of worried that it was catering uh, too much to teenagers. Jewel, of course, has said all along that was never our intention. Um, But now they're saying, you know, this has just gotten so extreme so quickly that we have to do something fast. I I would not be surprised if, you know, they're just being buried with comments from educators and parents who are, you know, really freaked out about this product. Yeah. I, I'm I'm not too surprised we've seen this happen, but mm. I, the 60 day timer shocked me. I know that, it's extreme, that, especially if it's 2022 before or whatever, mm, and now right. you've got 60 days. What, what do you think they could do that would halt um, this catastrophic bit of regulation? I don't know. Well, you know, they've talked about. So they were even on stage last week at our TechCrunch Disrupt event. Uh, one of the co-founders, uh, James Monsies, was there, and he was talking about you know their efforts to cre- create a sort of a. a newer product that would uh, be Bluetooth enabled, for example. So one idea is, and I think maybe they're even doing this in in Israel and somewhere else in the world, um, is you would be able to sort of um, adjust the amount of nicotine that you're inhaling through your um, e-cig. So you could sort of dial it down over time. He's saying, you know, essentially we would help you wean yourself off of nicotine. Another thing that I've heard, but I don't know that the company has confirmed this, um, or if it's an outside idea that somebody would like for Juul to adopt, is to create sort of geofences around schools specifically via a Bluetooth product so that the kids, because that's really where kids are sort of apparently vaping up a storm. You can Juul in the bathroom, I hear. It's, all, it's Yeah, exactly. All, but then you wouldn't, but you wouldn't be able to. So, I mean, they're, they're very sort of publicly trying to say we're doing something, but apparently the FDA is like, that's not fast enough. Uh, so I'm so here's really... 60 days to roll out something much more <laughs> impressive. I, I, I'm shocked that it's so short. Danny, are you seeing a lot of uh, juuling in New York? I kind of view New York as a cool place as opposed to SF being a dorky place. So I'm curious if it's <laughs> as popular uh, in the land of suits. I It is. It's definitely, you see it on the sidewalks. You see it in, in our offices. Um, we have several several jewelers in, in the TechCrunch office. I mean, to me, I think the, the real story here, it's actually a great connection with crypto, which is that, um, you know, when you look at the regulations and innovation, um, in both cases, I think we saw a, a onrush of investment and capital mm-hmm. going into sectors in which uh, are highly regulated, right? So I think some people's experience with Airbnb and Uber sort of said, well, you know, the taxi and licensing commissions in all these sta- you know cities never actually caught up, and Uber became a sixty-five billion dollar company. The same thing will happen with crypto. The SEC won't catch up, and the same thing will happen with jewel and vaping. Um, the FDA won't catch up, and it, it's shocking to me to see 
Um, you know, these, these are not sort of dumb regulators. They're quite uh, sophisticated. Um, the SEC was engaged on, on blockchain as early as 2011, 2012. Um, and uh, I think we're seeing kind of the, the outcomes here where in the crypto space are getting a lobbyist basically to prevent the sort of 60-day timeline that I think Juul and, and the vaping products are facing now. Well, you could more easily ban Juul than crypto as a category, but I see the parallels. The, the difference, though, that I would throw up is that Juul is an amazing business, whereas crypto... Mm-hmm as a category, seems to still be searching, as we said, for maturity mm-hmm. and, and its kind of place in the market. I, I pulled up some of the numbers we had on Jewel from earlier this year. These are via everyone's uh, favorite VC nerd, Dan Premack over at Axios. Um, you know, I think Jewel was protected, uh, projecting like $940 million in revenue for 2018. So nearly a full unicorn's valuation in top line, uh, 70% gross margins, and a 2018 EBITDA projection projection, sorry, of $250 million. Those are insane numbers. This this stuff, and I'm actually about 100 bucks of that profit line because I'm a Jewel user too because that's how life goes. Um, it, it's an amazing business. I'm curious if that's going to change how the regulatory landscape touches it because it is, you know, it could lobby on its own behalf as I'm sure it's going to and has been. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big questions, yeah, I think one of the big questions there, Alex, is um, how many people go from Jewel into traditional smoking? Right, so is it a, a gateway drug? Is it a um, is it healthier? Is it actually limiting the amount of um, smoking inhalation, uh, potential cancer risk long term? I mean, one of the challenges is this sort of came out of nowhere, right? So we have very limited research. We certainly don't have any uh, longitudinal studies to understand the health effects, and so uh, that's where I think the challenge is going to be around the sixty day timeline. Uh, what can you really say? or prove in the next couple of days, it's going to change anyone's mind. What, what I will say is that I, I'm very much in favor of anything that helps block teenage smoking. I never want to sound cavalier about that category, especially because, you know, kids are more impressionable and more addictable to stuff. But I, I do think some of the moral panic still strikes me as kind of ridiculous. Well, young Alex, I read today that it's actually, <laughs> uh, it can, nicotine can aff- affect your brain development all the way through age 30, which I was sort of shocked Crap, to I'm 29. <laughs> That's like, me, that's oh me. man, I've been smoking for so long. Is that is that what happened to me? That is what happened. Okay, well, this answers. So yeah, that explains about this, this, this my entire time on this show. Actually, hey, everyone, don't forget this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Okay, uh, well, I, the 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 analog between crypto and Jewel, though, I, I wonder if we'll ever see a a Jewel esque uh, in terms of addictiveness crypto products. I feel like Bitcoin's plateaued. And if there'll be kind of an analog, like if something kind of blows up out of the crypto space that drives as much attention as Jewel had among smokers. Well, like one is overused and one's not used enough, right? The one that was yeah. supposed to be like the medium of exchange. It hasn't happened. So I don't know. Maybe we'll just never quite get there. Um, but some things are happening uh, outside of the world of uh, silly SF focused topics. And uh, there's been a number of major IPOs in the last week. And so we've grouped them thematically into one bucket for everybody. And we're looking essentially at three companies from China, two of which went public here and one that went public in Hong Kong. And because uh, this is a VC themed show, we'll go with the biggest one first. So what's going on with Meituan and uh, why did it choose Hong Kong, Danny? Uh, yeah, so Matron um, Dianping uh, IPO uh, two days ago um, in in Hong Kong raised four point two billion dollars uh, at a, a sixty nine dollar Hong Kong dollar um, share price. I mean, it's actually a quite a, a good win um, in a, in a very rough and turbulent sort of stock market environment in in China these days. Yes, Matron um, so. Dianping is a Yelp Groupon lifestyle 
uh, brand. It doesn't really fit into any of the the kind of classic companies in Silicon Valley, but um, has been very, very popular. It's expanded extremely rapidly. Um, Tencent owns about 20% of the company. Um, the, the challenge with here is is on the, the profits, like so many of the internet companies coming out of China. Um, in the four months um, ending April of this year, the company lost $3.3 billion dollars um and that is 3x the loss uh in the same time period Whoa, wait, a, f- wait a minute 3.3 wait wait 3.3 billion dollars in the first four months of this year yes because it only had a, as reported a, by the financial times yeah i trust them they're boring and they have a great paywall um but they lost 2.9 billion dollars last year so that's an yes in, that's an insane it, wait, the, the, what? there's a massive expansion there's a massive expansion um so so uh Matrix and dianping is actually competing with an alibaba backed um, competitor called LME, E-L-E period M-E, mm-hmm. um, and they're which going tête-à-tête, yeah. uh, which raised uh, several billion dollars from its backers, uh, from SoftBank, from Alibaba, and they are going um, just nuts against each other trying to capture this market. And so um, the losses are intensifying. Um, and that was part of the question around this this IPO is even though it was a $4.2 billion um, money grab from the public markets, um, it's not going to last long. No, um, and so the question I'm, is: Is what happens next? I'm I'm absolutely shocked. So a little bit of background context: the, the what we'll call it L L dot me, just for the sake of okay. conversation. So L dot me or L A dot me raised three billion from Alibaba in August 23rd. So that was you know 48 minutes ago, kind of in adventure time. Um, wow, I, I'm I'm so surprised at Meituan's losses. But sorry, Connie, I cut you off. No, no, no. You, I was just going to say, does Alibaba have a controlling stake in Alami? Is that what happened? I would presume so, given how the Chinese venture market tends to work. Um, but I mean, I don't actually, I don't recall if um, Tencent, for example, has a controlling stake in Meituan. Um, but Tencent is a backer of the company out of kind of the big three in China, um, Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the pace of losses is shocking because in last year when it lost that $2.9 billion, it had... Um, Essentially, top line of like nearly two x its losses. Roughly looking at the kind of the yuan yuan comparison there, so I, I I doubt they'll be able to pull it off this year with that scale of a loss. Maybe that's why their IPO was scaled down to a four point two billion dollar raise as opposed to a six billion dollar raise. Um, they raised a little bit less than they expected. And they start trading, I think, September twentieth. The shares. Yes, is that I believe that's correct. So it's kind of a slow, slow motion IPO. Yeah, absolutely. Um, gosh, I. Look, I, I'm all for companies that don't make money going public if you can because get that money. But, I mean, if you're losing more money than Uber, is is an IPO really the right mechanism? I'm I'm shocked by that. All right, well, well, I think, and the other piece here is that the company debuted in Hong Kong, whereas most of these other companies have chosen Nasdaq or the NYSC in order to debut. So it, it's interesting that they're staying within the local market. Um, similar to Xiaomi, which also has similar profitability problems, um, that uh, I think there is sort of a sense that uh, when the, the the numbers are hard, they don't come to the United States. <laughs> All right, it's a very euphemistic <laughs> way of putting it. <laughs> I could work I, at the Chinese National Statistical Office. Yes, yes, you can you can massage those GDP numbers. Um, I would love to rephrase that in kind of the common vernacular, but we're not allowed to swear on the program, so I will I will hold off. Uh, one idea that I've had this is maybe a dumb idea, and so if if this is bad, please don't email me email me saying that I'm dumb. But I'm curious if it isn't just a financial question about which companies choose Hong Kong versus the US exchanges and more maybe what the Chinese government prefers. Because if you think about Xiaomi and uh, and Meituan, I feel like they're they're much closer tied to either um, high tech uh, manufacturing the government cares a lot about or companies that are deeply integrated with certain parts of the Chinese government like Tencent. And I wonder if there's pressure to go public closer to home. 
Um, yeah, I've re- I've written a little bit about this. Um, a lot of the Chinese companies uh, do go through Hong Kong. So in the last couple of years, Hong Kong, um, Shanghai, and the Shenzhen stock exchanges have something known as a stock connect program, and that allows uh, mainlanders to buy into um, Hong Kong listed stocks and vice versa. And so uh, it it really depends on who they expect the investors to be. If they want mainlanders, um, you know, domestic investors to buy in, it's better to be in Hong Kong. Um, if they expect more global. Um, sort of investment uh, professionals think like hedge funds or large institutional uh, wealth managers to buy in. Um, this is Alibaba's story. Uh, you come to the United States. Right. Uh, and um, it, it's definitely a mix, right? So Xiaomi and, and Meituan are definitely consumer companies, so they have the local brands. And I think that that was what they felt was the people who were most likely to invest in the company. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I talked to um, Doug Leone, the global managing partner of uh, Sequoia Capital last week, and we we talked a little bit about this, and he was sort of explaining to me that there's this balance of supply and demand. Um, the Chinese government doesn't sort of want to see an IPO that goes up and down, he said. So they kind of you know only give their blessings to a certain number of companies, uh, which I, ha- I hadn't realized. But, you know, obviously here in the U.S., you don't have to go through that sort of, you know, uh, process. So... Um, uh, you know why they sort of you know blessed uh, these particular companies versus others. I don't really know, but well, when the government gets to kind of call the shots, it's hard to always understand why the government called that particular shot. Um, and this is why I don't know thematically in my own politics, central planning is not high on my list of uh, great things to introduce to the economy. But uh, that's why I'm not a socialist. Regardless, uh, we have two very other, Chicago of you. Very yeah. Well, I mean, I did go to the University of Chicago, so I am one of those known Chicago kids. All right. And that's a historical joke. If you don't get it, too bad. All right, moving on. Two IPOs from China that were domestic. Uh, one was boring and one was not. So I think we'll kind of zip through the boring one and then talk about why Tesla is in trouble. Uh, second. So first up, there's a company called 111. And that's all like numbers, just 111. Uh, priced at $14 a share, uh, lower end of its 14 to $16 range, sold 7.1 million shares down from a 9.3 million share debut hope. Uh, so it raised about $99.4 million, uh, was looking to raise as much as $130. Um, 111 is a Chinese pharmacy of sorts. They do kind of um, a digital pharmacy program and also have IRL stores that are a hybrid now. This is kind of the outside edge of what I would call tech. Mm-hmm. I kind of went back and forth on if it was, but I decided because it has a, lo- a strong e-commerce component, I guess it counts. Um, I, do you guys struggle with that? Kind of, kind of what counts as tech? Because I feel like it's gotten so muddied. I don't really know. Where to draw? Is it tech or venture back? Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, Jewel is it a tech company? Not really. I mean, if you buy it at a gas station, can it count as tech? <laughs> I don't. Because that's what you buy you Jewel buy, pods. I, I mean, know. there's so you much be, though. You know, yeah. like today I wrote about a store, a company that makes you know shoes out of recycled water bottles, but it's venture backed and it's, it's you know sort of like the sophisticated technology that's enabling to them to make these shoes that are comfortable and then come in a wide variety of colors. I mean, everything's sort of you know touched by tech these days, so it's sort of hard to sort of separate tech from anything, frankly. Yeah, that's why I think- What Connie was saying is uh, she just visited Brooklyn. Oh, (laughs) I see. That explains so much. (laughs) Uh, I think the way that I would kind of break it down is if it's a really fast-growing private company that has at least a tech angle to it, Mm -hmm. it probably falls under our- But this company also, 111, I think it started as an online pharmacy and it's sort of more recently expanded into brick and mortar. Yeah, so it felt like it fit the mold. Sure. You know? Um, and if I recall correctly, it did not have the world's best uh, debut. And so that is 111. If you care about it, you can Google it. All right. Uh, last this week is 
uh, company that I was really excited to see go public because it's a fascinating moment. Uh, we've talked about Elon's antics on the show a whole bunch. We've talked about Tesla a whole bunch. Um, what if you had a less mature Tesla and it was going public? Well, it's called NIO, N-I-O, <laughs> all caps, I believe. Uh, it's a Chinese electric car maker and it went public, uh, which is simply fantastic. It's a really interesting firm. It raised a billion dollars in its IPO. But it was trying to raise $1.8 billion. It was trying to raise $1.8 billion. It did not get that, um, which probably is because it had essentially no history. Yeah. As a revenue generating business, it, it started selling cars uh, months ago. After Literally, you- like what? I think it's it's delivered like five hundred or seven hundred cars. It's got a wait list of maybe I don't even know. It, it was a, we went seventeen thousand cars a while back. It was a couple thousand cars, but yeah. it's really nascent. So people were taking a real, you know, you know, like in Vegas when it's like four a.m. Right. and you still have all that money left in your pocket and it's already <laughs> in chips and you walk past the blackjack table. That's what this IPO felt like to me. Well, you know, it was interesting. So we had a transportation reporter uh, from TechCrunch who's great, uh, uh, Kirsten Korosek, on a couple of weeks ago. And she was asking why this company had decided to go public rather than opt for private market uh, investment, especially considering that so much of the funding these days goes to private companies. I I didn't really have a great answer for that. I don't really know why it would want to sort of build its business in this sort of very public, transparent way. uh, maybe they're just trying to get in while the window is open. You know, maybe maybe two years from now, let's say they, let's say they raise two billion more mm-hmm. private, right? Mm-hmm. And they stay private for two years, and then the whole global economy takes a dip, <laughs> right, right? And then all of a sudden, you can't go public, and you're just this this company has raised at that point four and a half billion because they raised two and a half before they went public. You've got so much investor pressure behind you, but you don't have the profitability to go public anymore. You're going to have a huge liquidity crisis and have to sell to like Chrysler or something. Who wants that? Jesus. So. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I always, I always parallel, Getting I always parallelize this with the, uh, with the biotech world, right? Where you know a lot of biotech stocks actually come out very, very early in the life cycle, oftentimes before phase one, phase two. Um, and it's not uncommon to go into the over-the-counter markets um, in that world. And so we're not used to that in the tech world because there is this sort of depth of private capital that comes into these cap tables. But uh, for something like Neo, where it's it just a huge gain or loss. Um, now it's it's free to get investment from anyone, uh, and as long as they can kind of prove their case either to the public or to institutional investors, you know, you can just go to the market and buy. Well, I, I think we all have to eat some crow, or at least me, um, because while Denny was giving us that lovely paragraph, I pulled up their stock price, and uh, they went public. I believe at six dollars and twenty six cents a share. Yes, that's uh, right. Guess what they're worth now? It's ticking upward. Guess. Dun, dun. I can't sing, but imagine the Jeopardy theme song in the background as Connie gives us an answer. <laughs> you said what was the opening price? Uh, Six twenty-six went public at that was its IPO price. Gosh, seven dollars and fifty cents. According to this, I think it's eleven ninety-five. <gasps> what? Yeah. Oh my God! What happened yesterday? Now, if I'm looking at the wrong ticker symbol because it is a Chinese company, we will edit this out. <laughs> but if you're hearing this, I was correct. So there you go. Um, that's shocking to me. That's I mean, good for them. All right. Did they sell more cars yesterday? They, made, they sold six cars and all of a sudden they're worth way more. Um, but this is the IPO game. I mean, this is this is the kind of the fun part of the conversation. This is what we should see some of. There should be some less mature companies going public. It shouldn't be fully baked successes like Dropbox that go public uh, after, you know, doing most of their value creation in the private markets. Cuts right. out a lot of people. But we should leave it there. We'll be right back in seven days. Stay cool, everyone. Connie, thank you for coming. Thank you. Danny, thank you. Absolutely. All right, we're out of here. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to Connie Loizos, our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. And we will see you all right here next week. 